Brian Barnett is just a regular guy. He's not a doctor. He has no legal license in any field of mental or emotional health. Brian Barnett merely shares the insights he's gained from his personal experiences for anybody who may choose to use such information as he or she personally chooses, while accepting full responsibility for his or her own individual thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and actions. Brian Barnett assumes no responsibility whatsoever for anybody's individual choice to expose himself or herself to any information that Brian Barnett shares, and by listening to this program, you're acknowledging that you, and only you, are responsible for your own thoughts, feelings, and actions. Happy Thursday, everybody. I hope you all are having a great week so far. Season 3, Episode 11 today. Still a little bit to go, but we're almost to the weekend where if we don't have to work, we all try to do something nice for ourselves, don't we? Welcome back to the Last Symptom Podcast. I'm Brian Barnett, the creator and host of the show, as well as the founder of all things under the Last Symptom umbrella. You know, you should be doing nice things for yourself every day, but... We're taking baby steps here, aren't we? And I like setting weekends aside as something special. You know, it helps establish routine and tradition. For those of you who work a non-traditional schedule, why not pick one of your days off and set it aside routinely as a day you're going to do something nice for yourself? It doesn't have to cost you money. Heck, a a midday nap in a favorite spot can be doing something nice for yourself. A nice long bath. A good book. I'll tell you the one I'm reading right now. It's called Skeletons on the Sahara. And the interesting thing about Skeletons on the Sahara is that I first bought it at a Barnes & Noble in Philadelphia back in, say, 2005 to 2006-ish, right around there. Man, I used to spend a lot of time in bookstores back then, especially Barnes Noble and uh, Borders. Do you remember Borders Bookstore? So I'd come home with a new armful of books just about, oh, once or twice, three times a week, knowing that I'd probably never live long enough to read every one of those books. But uh, Skeletons on the Sahara, and like I say, I bought the book back in around 2005-ish, or right around that time. Brought that home, was very excited to get into it, and I'll tell you what, I remember also, I got that off of the bargain bin in the Barnes & Noble, so I think I got it for five bucks or something like that, the hardback. My wife, my ex-wife Diana, ended up reading that book, and she said, you should read that. Boy, that's right down your alley. And I just never found the time to read it. Now, I am reading another book, too, at, uh, at the same time. You remember the author that uh, I got into touch with here a couple months back? Uh, I'm still reading her book, and I'm about uh, halfway through that. The Ropes That Bind by Tracy Stopler. That's that's the other book I'm reading. And uh, by the way, if uh, Tracy's listening, I'd just like you to know, Tracy, several people have gotten in touch with me, said that they've gotten that book and read it. And uh, have enjoyed it. So there you go. Um, Back to Skeletons on the Sahara. Picked this book up a million years ago. Never got a chance to read it. My ex-wife read it. Said, you really should read this. This is right down your alley. You know, being a a woodsman and everything. Kind of a survivalist. And so I've been hanging on to it. For now, (laughs) what was it, 2005? 15 years. 15 years I've been hanging on to this book, really wanting to read it. But um, there's something about me. When I when I really want to do something, I want to do it right. I don't want to just sit and kind of give it casual attention. I want to give it my full attention. So I've been kind of waiting for the right frame of mind, I reckon, to uh, be able to give this book my entire attention. Skeletons on the Sahara and... Uh, so, as you know, I went on a road trip here last week, took that book along with me, got started into it, and I'm hooked. So, uh, now I am reading it for real. Uh, 
and it's pretty good. It's all about survival. It's a true. It's a true story about survival in the Sahara Desert. And uh, man, so many great parts of this book. It starts off in the desert, then it kind of flips over to Boston, where the ship is about to leave. Kind of examines the lives of the sailors on that ship. They're going to end up stranded in the Sahara, and they're going to have to face these incredible odds and survive. I. I know kind of the trajectory of the story. So if you're interested in a book like that, um, yeah, I'd recommend Skeletons on the Sahara. You know, that can be the nice thing you do for yourself. If you've got a, a Kindle or something, I think you can get it for not too much. What other nice things can you do for yourself? Well, how about some time set aside with the old guitar or the fiddle? A walk. Yeah, just a walk. A glass of wine. Be creative and figure out some ways to be purposely and intentionally nice to yourself. Well, are y'all ready for some crying today? I, I don't know. I don't know. I can't promise anything. All I know is that I'm planning on reading a letter to you from my ex-wife Diana a little later on, who, as you know, even after all these years, I have great love for so there might be some tears. I tried to read this letter to myself a bit before sitting down to record today's show, and it was tough. Um, it was real tough. But it has been a while since I've brought Diana up, and this is a way for you to get a clearer picture of my life back when I was still living with borderline personality disorder, completely unaware. Also, I have a lot of partners of people with emotional disorders who follow me, and I believe the insights offered in the letter will be helpful for those listeners. I was so privileged uh, to have a wife with such tremendous genuineness and insight, much more than me. Uh, Whatever I have accumulated over the years pales still, I'm sure, in comparison to my ex-wife Diana. And her words can provide you some comfort and direction and recognition for your own pain and struggles if you're a person on the other side of this, uh, such as she was. This is timely because I'm currently working on an intensive course specifically for those who care about somebody with emotional disorder, which is why I've been hanging on to this letter lately, and I think the time's good to to share it. But before we get into any personal letter stuff, the first subject we're going to discuss today is this. If inaccurate perceptions are at the root of emotional disorder, and you're in the process of recovering, how will you know what's accurate and what's not? You know, it's like, if your perspectives are already off, how do you spot when they're leading you astray or when they're erroneous? Well, what a good question. We're going to get into that here in a second. For now, let me mention thelastsymptom.com. That's my website around which all of my work revolves. If you haven't been there, you should visit. It's thelastsymptom.com. Thelastsymptom.com offers Plenty of free resources, such as the uh, article library there, links to my Facebook education group, which is a huge library of information and insights in and of itself. And I've worked very hard to maintain its quality. It is, this is not the typical Facebook group that you join, ladies and gentlemen. I probably don't say that enough. This is not a support group where you just go in and people bemoan their lot in life, or uh, brag about how their emotional disorders have given them certain superpowers, uh, such as empathy or artistic ability. No, this is strictly an educational site, and because of that, it's like a school. And when information comes in, when people try to share information that is uh, erroneous or it's misdirection, Uh, That information doesn't get through. So this is a Facebook group, an education group, 
which I have maintained very strict checks and balances on. So when you join, the information you get exposed to there, uh, you can trust that it's, that it's got my support. It has to serve an educational purpose uh, with a focus on authentic recovery from emotional disorder. There are also uh, a few paid services that I offer over at thelastsymptom.com. The opportunity to talk to me on the phone, one-on-one, or through Zoom, one-on-one, course that requires a little bit more preparation. I have to shower, put on pants, and all that, but uh, I'm willing to do it. And the most exciting new resource that I have only begun offering here recently is a two-week intensive pre-recorded structured course that I call a superior replacement to programs like DBT because instead of simply learning tricks to control symptoms, this course is designed to get right to the fundamental causes of emotional disorder and help you understand the very nature of these things from the root up so that you can rid yourself of emotional disorder authentically and permanently. See, then you don't have to learn any tricks for managing symptoms because there won't be any symptoms. Doesn't that sound a lot better than just learning what to do when the symptoms pop up? The intensive two-week course I'm talking about is called The Last Symptom Fundamentals Course. You can find it over at thelastsymptom.com in the Paid Services tab if you're just interested in in exploring that and learning more about it or if you're interested in enrolling. Uh, Very soon, I'm looking forward to getting some of the most recent students who are enrolled in that course on this program. I'd like to hear what they think about the experience and for them to share that with you. As always, I want to deeply thank those who have had the means and the, the desire to support my work with donations these past couple weeks. You know who you are, and I do too. This week's episode of The Last Symptom Podcast is affectionately dedicated to you. Well, let's get into uh, the first topic today. How can I know when my perceptions are erroneous? If inaccurate perceptions are truly at the root of emotional disorder, and they are, and you're in the process of recovering in an authentic way, well, then how do you know what's accurate and what's not? It's like, you know, if if your perspectives are already off and you're walking around perceiving these things inaccurately, how do you spot when you're working with erroneous perspectives that are leading you astray? Ain't that a good question? Well, the answer is pretty simple. You'll know when you are using erroneous perceptions or a disharmonious approach to life because of the disharmonious results you consistently end up with. Isn't that pretty simple? Let's say it again. You'll know you're using erroneous perceptions or a disharmonious approach to life because of the disharmonious results you consistently end up with. The opposite is also true, by the way. When you consistently end up with smooth, positive results, then there's only one possibility. The perspectives or approach that you're using for those aspects of life are accurate and harmonious with life. You see, it's not complicated. This is true for anything we approach. (laughs) If I'm working on my car and it takes me nine hours to change a tire, I'm doing something wrong. And what happens if it takes me nine hours? What's my state? What's my state of emotion and state of... of being eight hours into changing a tire. Man, I'm, I'm calling that thing every name in the book. I'm kicking it. I'm throwing my tools. Why? Because it shouldn't be that complicated to change a tire, right? So the disharmonious results, the frustrating disharmonious results, tell me 
in no ambiguous way whatsoever that my approach, the way I'm doing this, is wrong. It's I'm not taking a harmonious approach. Why am I not taking a harmonious approach? Well, probably because my understanding of what I'm doing or what the problem is is wrong. You know, when your when your perceptions of what it is you need to do are wrong, you're getting started wrong. The results you get are wrong. And what's the result of that? Frustration, angst, anger. You have to put in way more effort than you sh- than should be necessary in order to accomplish the objective. On the other side of the coin, what would you say is true if I uh, I go out to change my the tire on my truck and it takes me 25 minutes? Am I then very frustrated? No, because clearly my approach has been harmonious with my objectives. My perspectives, that is my understanding of what it is needs to be done and the right way to do it, are obviously harmonious with the objective. See, that's not difficult. So in real life and with our emotional disorders and with these erroneous perspectives that we've been living with, again, the question is, how will you know? How will you know if the perspective that you're using is off? Well, because the results won't lie. The results we consistently get don't lie. Um, here in the last live course, well, when I hosted the last Symptom Fundamentals live course uh, here back in August, I had a, a member of that class say, uh, bring up sort of the same argument. You know, he said, Brian, but how do you know? How do you know that you really are Cured of borderline personality disorder. And uh, his argument was that, you know, he's been hanging around a lot of people who are recovering alcoholics and that sort of thing. And they say that the most dangerous thing is to be lulled into a sense of complacency, to think that I'm all right now. Well, there's, there's two things going on there when you're talking about alcoholism. First of all, you've got the emotional addiction, but it doesn't end there with alcoholism. Emotional addiction turns into physical addiction. You understand that? I, I did an episode on alcoholism, uh, I think back in the first season. Emotional addiction is when you need a drug or you need alcohol as an emotional crutch. At that point, if you fix the underlying problems, if you identify and address and fix the underlying emotional problems, a person can go on to drink because the problems are fixed. The thing causing the person to drink is fixed. Uh, I shouldn't say drink. I should say abuse alcohol. All right. The underlying causes making a person abuse alcohol, once they are fixed, then they're gone. Now, I need to be very clear here. What I'm talking about is... When this happens, when a person identifies and fixes these underlying problems before, before a physical addiction has developed. But I would say that the people who fall into a category where they, they qualify or they fit that category is very, very small. Because what happens is that uh, these physical addictions can, can develop pretty quick. You know, my, you've heard me talk about my brother. He's a, an alcoholic with a physical addiction to alcohol. The doctors have told him, you have to stop drinking, you will die. And even with his life on the line, he has not identified and addressed the underlying emotional causes which are uh, driving him to drink. And even if he did, he's past that point where he could say, all right, well, I've addressed the uh, underlying emotional issues, now I can drink. No, he, he can't do that. He's past that point because his body has now developed a physical dependency on alcohol. Do you see the difference? Well, I didn't mean to get into a big discussion today about alcoholism or anything, but the person who did bring this up to me, 
and suggested that uh, I'm in a precarious situation because I think I'm all better from borderline personality disorder, and he thinks I'm just going to fall off the wagon someday. Well, the thing to keep in mind there is that if you simply have an emotional disorder, it's not the same. (laughs) Having an emotional disorder by itself is not the same as having a physical addiction. So there's no wagon to fall off of. What is the cure to borderline personality disorder? Education. Yeah, insights. Insights automatically change the way you view a thing and the way you approach it and the way you feel about it. Right? If I, um, if I come running into the house and you're sitting on the couch and I say, oh my God, there's a tornado outside. What do you feel? Probably panic. Right? You jump. What's your behavior? Oh, you jump up from the couch. You're, you're racing around. You're trying to find a place to hide. What are your thoughts? Terror? Survival? Right? So the, the perspective or the understanding you're working with has affected your thoughts, your feelings, your behaviors. Now what happens when you're hiding in the closet there for five minutes and you don't hear any wind or anything, and then you start thinking about it for a second, you go, wait a second. When he come in racing into the house and told me that there was a tornado outside, uh, I didn't hear any wind. And uh, I was sitting right by a window. And all I saw was blue, sky- blue skies outside. You wait another five minutes, Nothing. So you peek out the closet, you walk outside, you walk around the house. Blue skies as far as you can see. I lied to you. I tricked you, you see. Now, now that you know there's not a tornado, are you still in a state of panic? Are your thoughts still in a state of panic? Are your behaviors reflective of somebody who is in a state of panic? No. Your new understanding of the situation has automatically changed your thoughts, your feelings, your behaviors. Is it possible that now you know there's no tornado, that you're going to go in to make yourself a sandwich, but right in the middle of making yourself a sandwich, you're going to fall off the wagon and have a relapse of terror? Not without a tornado. (laughs) Not without a real tornado. So I understand the person's concern when he says, you know, maybe, maybe it's, it's a situation, you know, Brian Barnett, that you're in where you're so confident that you no longer have borderline personality disorder, that you're, you're in the most dangerous position in your life. Maybe you're going to have a relapse. I understand the concern, but he's confusing the very nature of recovery from emotional disorder with something like heroin addiction or alcoholism where a person has a physical dependency on these things. A simple emotional disorder is not a physical dependency on anything. It's any, it's emotional in nature only. You fix the underlying emotional causes. It's gone. It's gone for real. It's gone for forever. You can't slip back into perceiving the world in a way that you have escaped. Right? You don't view the world that way anymore. You don't view life that way anymore. You don't, you don't misunderstand the nature of feelings the same way you did before. There's no falling off a wagon there. So anyway, the, the discussion we're having right now is about how when you're working with erroneous perceptions, then you can only expect to get negative results. You can only expect to get disharmonious, frustrating Uh, negative results and how the opposite is also true. When you have accurate perceptions or you're approaching a thing harmoniously, then the results you get are also harmonious. In the past, I've talked to various individuals about how healthy people, when they're going along in life, consistently getting a negative, frustrating, complicated result. Now, this is healthy people, mind you. Healthy people, when they're going about in life, and they start getting a negative, frustrating, complicated result, what does this cause them to do? Do they just keep barging along? Well, that's what unhealthy people do. That's the irony. When we're unhealthy, 
and we encounter frustration, complication, negative results, what does this cause us to do? Just keep on barging ahead harder, right? (laughs) Isn't that ironic? I did it. I'm sure you do it. it. It doesn't occur to us that we're approaching the thing incorrectly. We're convinced that we're approaching the thing correctly. And the negative, disharmonious results that we're getting don't dissuade us from that belief in any way. That is very strange to me now. It's strange to me now. It wasn't for the first 35 years of my life. So unhealthy people in this situation will keep going along. It's like they just keep hitting their thumb with the hammer. It never occurs to them that they're holding the hammer wrong. But healthy people, on the other hand, they only, they only get negative, frustrating results for, for a very short, brief period of time before they say, wait a second, wait a second. I got to be doing something wrong here. I have to be understanding this incorrectly because it should not be this complicated. It shouldn't be this frustrating. It's like that hammer illustration. Build a whole house. Every nail you hammer in, you whack your thumb. (laughs) And it never occurs to you. That perhaps you've been taught to hold to hold a hammer incorrectly. <laughs> it's funny, but it's not funny. <laughs> but that's the reality. That's the reality. Of what's going on there? The healthy person said only has to hit his thumb like twice, and he says, "Wait a second, <laughs> that hurts. I'm doing something wrong. I need to hold the hammer wrong, or I need to hold the nail wrong, or I, you know, I need to find out what I'm doing wrong here that I keep hitting my thumb." And unhealthy people, they don't do that. You see, for healthy people, when they're going along, getting a negative, frustrating, complicated result, this causes them to stop and reevaluate what they might be doing wrong. You see, the consistent negative results tell them that they must be looking at the thing all wrong or approaching the thing all wrong, so they stop reevaluate and try something different the next time. Isn't that so logical? Well, folks, believe it or not, I still have to go through this process myself in life all the time of stopping and reevaluating. You're going to have to do it too, no matter how healthy you get. You know why? Because this is a human aspect. This is a healthy human aspect of life. Just this weekend, if you'll remember from last week's episode, I told you I was going to take my daughter out to a cave and do a little road trip. Well, just this past weekend, while spending some more time with my daughter than usual, because we were on a road trip, I found myself frustrated at one point. I felt in angst, frustrated, in angst, impatient, and uh, I behaved in a way that I wasn't happy with, you know, and what I'm talking about is I just grew impatient and moody. (laughs) If you don't believe this is a, a human imperfection aspect of life, or let's say a a human condition aspect of life that uh, has nothing to do with emotional disorder, just turn on your TV. I think Snickers candy bars, (laughs) I think it's Snickers made a commercial about this. When people get tired and hungry, They act like monsters, (laughs) and that's what the commercial is about. These people look like monsters, and they're crashing through walls and everything, and somebody hands them a Snickers bar, and they turn back to themselves. That commercial is not about people with emotional disorder. That commercial is just about people, right? So if you're a person, this is just something that you're going to always deal with. Aspects of the human condition, that's what I'm talking about. So the issue is not whether we as people can always, always handle every situation perfectly. We can't, and we will never be able to, no matter how emotionally healthy we are. 
You see, it falls into the category of the human condition, something that is just, it's not fixable, so it's not a problem. The real issue is how do we look at our failures and how do we use those experiences to our benefit? So in my case, on this road trip, I stopped once I realized, uh, became aware of what I was feeling, that I was, uh, was behaving moody and impatient. I analyzed the situation. I tried to understand why. Why was I impatient and moody? And my reason for doing this is that I wanted to understand how I might more skillfully manage similar situations in the future. What I did not do was beat myself up or shame myself. So do you see that the the negative result I was getting, that is me ending up impatient and moody, was an alert to me that something, something in my thinking or approach to the situation was off. So I non-judgmentally analyzed the situation. So that, that's step one and two right there. First of all, being aware of what I was feeling. Being aware that I was not getting a harmonious result. Number two, stopping to analyze the situation non-judgmentally. So what did I discover upon analyzing the situation? Simply that I'm a person, (laughs) that Snickers commercial, I was tired, I was hungry, and I was uncomfortable. You know, what was not helping was spending practically all day, every day, trying to breathe through a handkerchief or a bandana, whatever you call it. I had a bandana tied around my face. In normal life, when I'm working almost all days from home, I rarely have to wear a a mask for this worldwide pandemic. Even if I do go to the store, I only have something on my face for a few minutes at most. But on this road trip, having to wear this mask everywhere, on, off, on, off, on, off, this was a new uncomfortable inconvenience that I just wasn't used to. I didn't feel like I could breathe. It was hot under the mask. So now that a negative result had alerted me that I was approaching something wrong, and after analyzing the situation and understanding the whys, what did I do then? Well, I come up with an adjustment for future similar situations. So what I decided was that the really where the problem was is that I had ignored my discomfort. I had ignored my tiredness. I had ignored my hunger. That was where the problem, that's where the divergence, let's say, occurred. Everything's going along fine. There's the divergence. Me ignoring my discomfort, my tiredness, my hunger. So I decided that in the future, instead of pushing through, I'd be more alert to these things And when I recognized them, I would stop and address them before, before they had a chance to cause me so much frustration. So the very next day, I implemented these changes, and guess what? No more irritability with my daughter. Everything was much more pleasant and harmonious. Yes, it was a little inconvenient to stop in the middle of driving, uh, trying to get to a certain destination to to stop even though I wasn't really I didn't really feel that hungry but I was tired of driving pulling over taking a break getting a bite to eat that just that little break right there kept me in a calm state a calm comfortable rested state so the results we're getting in life do not lie if they're smooth and pleasant we know we're approaching the thing right, just like changing the tire on that car. And by the way, this is not just an emotional health thing. That's what I want to emphasize. This, this applies to anything in life. If you're not getting smooth results, it's because you're, you're approaching the thing wrong. Your, your understanding of it is wrong. You're approaching it wrong. It applies to everything. Plug it in a television. If it takes you 30 minutes to plug in a television and you're kicking the wall at the end of it, you're doing something wrong. 
as soon as you recognize that you're getting frustrated and the results are not what you, what they should be, that's the time to stop and reevaluate. Try to figure out, you know, where that divergence is happening. So if the results we're getting in life are smooth and pleasant, we know we're approaching the thing right. If they're disordered and frustrating, well, that's our cue that we're perceiving or approaching the thing wrong. A bad result, by the way, is not the end of the world. It it don't mean that you're a failure. It is simply your opportunity to analyze, recalibrate, and see if you can get a better result. Um, Smooth, harmonious, positive results are your sign that you're approaching the thing right, that your perspectives, your understanding... And, you know, when we talk about your approach, we're really we're really talking about your understanding of the thing, right? Because you don't approach a thing <laughs> in a way that contradicts your understanding of it, right? However you approach a thing, that's based on whatever your understanding of that thing is. So I've been, you know, through this conversation, I've been kind of using those things interchangeably. But that's because however you're looking at a thing and understanding it, that determines your approach to it. So if you're getting you know, negative, frustrating, terrible results, there's no question. Your understanding or your perspectives, your approach to the thing is off. If you're getting smooth results that create no disorder, no frustration, you're doing something right. All right? The, that's how you'll know. So uh, I hope that's helpful. It's good for you to get into the habit of this process right away, by the way, of recognizing when you're not getting the results in the way that you'd like them, in other words, as smoothly as you'd like, or you're not getting the results you'd like at all. Uh, It's good to get into the habit of stopping and going through this evaluating thing and, and making adjustments in your approach or trying to understand the thing better before you you charge on because the more experience you get with that process, the better you're going to become at it. And remember, it's going to become hopefully an ongoing natural part of your way of living from now on. So there is our discussion today about that, about how will you know when you're working with perspectives that are uh, erroneous or unhealthy. And uh, I hope that clears it up for you. I I hope, actually, it changes your entire approach to living. That would be nice. And now here we are, the moment you've all been waiting for, this uh, letter from my ex-wife. Boy, I'm going to try to get through this without bawling like a baby, uh, This is very difficult for me uh, because when I read these letters from her, it's not like uh, 10 years have passed. It's like she gave me this letter yesterday. And so they're very uh, personal to me. But, uh, you know, I've realized here lately, especially in maybe season two of this podcast and this season, uh, I've kind of strayed from the really personal insights into my personal experience with borderline personality disorder and my crisis, you know, the big crisis that caused me to discover that I had a disorder, which led me down the road to trying to uh, understand it inside and out and fix it once and for all. So this will be beneficial for you. It'll, it'll paint a picture for you, really, of what uh, my life was like at that time, the relationship with my ex-wife. Uh, but primarily, I'm thinking that this will be so nice for those of you who are in similar situations. You're hurting. Your worlds have been turned upside down. You don't trust your own judgment. Um, you don't know the right thing to do. And... Um, Hopefully, Diana's insights in this letter will will be helpful to you. 
The letter's dated April 6, 2011, so we're coming up on 10 years. And uh, it goes like this. Dear Brian, I've been feeling really crazy the last few weeks or so. Anxious and sad and worried. Knowing that the month I gave you was almost up and that I would have to talk to you about things again. Uh, The month she's talking about was uh, she told me that uh, in one month she was going to give me a definitive answer about whether or not she was going to go through with our divorce. So uh, that last month, I really had an opportunity there to take recovery seriously, to really motivate myself to be interested in truly understanding the underlying causes of of these things. And I didn't. I didn't do it. Um, I didn't even truly believe that there was anything uh, wrong with me, that I had a disorder. I wasn't convinced. Um, I was living in my own apartment at that time. Sometimes I had two, three women over a day or night. Uh, It was really, I had a revolving door. So, uh, you know, I was just trying to kill my pain with distraction. Instead, instead of really bearing down and taking recovery seriously. So that's kind of a thorn to look back at at how stupid I was during that time. But that's what she's talking about. I've been feeling really crazy the last few weeks or so, anxious and sad and worried, knowing that the month I gave you was almost up and that I would have to talk to you about things again. I was feeling very down and very depressed, taking it all on myself again, worrying that my actions or words would cause you to, well, let's face it, run back to Janelle and your old way of doing things. I was feeling very negative, partly because I couldn't get my thoughts in order and clearly explain what I wanted and how I felt. I hope I can maybe do that now. I also want you to know that I feel a sense of clarity at the moment and hope that even though it may not be exactly what you want to hear, that you will be able to listen to what's in my heart and maybe feel a little bit of the hope that I feel. The last year and a half were awful. I guess you've probably gotten a little bit of the sense of that. I felt so lost and so lonely. I didn't know what to do because I knew you weren't in recovery, but I didn't feel I could confront you with it, and I was afraid of what I would find out. To put it honestly... I was miserable. There were times I wished that uh, I would contract an incurable illness or get into a bad accident just so that I could get out of that situation. Strangely enough, I never imagined you cheating again so that it could be over. Apparently, dying would have been less painful than that. Throughout our marriage, I had periods of hope after you made a new resolve to change or fix what was wrong. But your resolve always faded and I would be traumatized again by new bombshells dropping until I didn't trust your words anymore. I felt like I was just plodding along and that if this was how life was going to be, I would just have to figure out a way to be content with it, even though I wasn't happy. Your rages became intolerable. The hatred I saw in your eyes hurt my heart. 
I never would have imagined that the person who was my husband could could deal so hatefully with me and say such things to me. Why I sat there and took it, I don't know. Time after time, your actions and your words made me feel like I wasn't important to you, that what you wanted always came ahead of my needs and feelings. I wasn't living with a husband. I wasn't even living with a friend. I didn't feel safe to be myself or express my thoughts or even be playful sometimes. Now knowing that there were multiple affairs going on during all that time somehow makes it even more horrible that you treated me that way. Your affection and attention went to the other women while I got angry and distant, Brian. The double life you led has ruined my memories of the good times. You sent me a picture soon after we separated of the two of us with a date stamp on it, and all I could do was calculate where that fit into the scheme of things. I know that everything was separate for you, but it was all intertwined for me. When I went to see the therapist last week, she asked me to give her the pros and cons of divorcing and staying together. I had trouble thinking about the pros of getting back together because I think about all the other stuff besides the infidelity as if the infidelity weren't enough. I could think of a lot of cons. So she switched and asked me to visualize getting back together. How did I see that going? I didn't see it working. I saw us using each other as a crutch and not breaking out of our codependent tendencies because we both have them. I saw us falling back into old patterns, me assuming that I needed to take care of you and trying to manage your recovery and you putting your walls back up. I didn't see myself feeling safe because there is no trust. When she asked me to visualize us getting divorced, as strange as it sounds, I saw at least a little hope. If I can see you get healthy and learn to live successfully on your own without depending on me, I will see a strong man. If I can get healthy and overcome my co-dependent tendencies and figure out why I acted the way I did and prevent it from happening again, I see a new, empowered me ready to be in a relationship. When... When two healthy, strong people get together, there would be a much better chance at success and happiness. I'm not saying that I definitely see us getting back together, or that we will definitely remain apart forever, but I am at least open. I asked her if I was naive to feel this way, that we could maintain a friendly relationship even if I needed this, but that depends on you. She says that it's entirely possible that something like that could happen and asked me if this was what I needed to feel safe, if there was to be any relationship in the future. You say that it's when you are lonely that you're very vulnerable, but we were married and together when you were unfaithful. So I need to see you deal with and overcome those feelings of loneliness because you had them when we were together. I need to relearn who I am. I am not myself when I'm with you. The real me is smart and funny. and caring, and playful, and sometimes irreverent and sarcastic, but a good person. 
I need to feel completely safe before I risk my heart and my health again. I know that you disagree with my feelings about divorce. I know that it scares and saddens you, and I know that you have nightmares about it. But I won't be the but I won't be the person in those nightmares. I will talk to you. I cannot support you as a wife right now, but I can as a friend. You will not be alone. I want us to remain friends if we can. I want to set up boundaries that I feel comfortable enforcing. I want us to be able to help each other's recovery where we can. If I need to know details or how you could have done what you did or clarify something, or if you need to know how I felt about something or why I felt the way I did, I want us to be able to talk about it. I want us to heal rather than damaging each other further. And the way you deal with this sets up how I will feel about things in the future. I know you were... I know you worry about me meeting somebody else. All I can say to that is that it would be a huge mistake for me to get into a relationship with someone else anytime soon. Not only would that be stupid of me, but it would be unfair to whoever the other person was since I have so much pain and so many trust issues to work through and sorting them out will take a long time. I think sometimes that you're really worried that you will be the one to find someone else. I believe with all my heart that if it is a good, healthy thing for us to be together, then there is a possibility that will happen one day, but only when we are individually healthy. I'm very proud and hopeful because of the progress you've made so far and because you finally seem to be on the right road. I know that we will face things that will be difficult and sad. But I hope that you will always be open to talking with me and not shut down. I hope that you will use all the resources you now have available to you to do the best you can at your recovery. I hope you will real. I hope you will realize that you are not alone. You have love in your life and a lot of people who are pulling for you. I hope that you will. I hope that you will be the hero you always wanted to be and prove to everyone that you can win over this. With hope, Diana.